As a national resource for senior IT executives, Sync curates environments and events that foster truly valuable peer engagement based in quality networking, genuine relationship, and in-depth discussion. Our podcast, Sync, The Conversation, offers a digital window into the unique engagement experience that is the Sync community. I'm the CEO of Sync, Ross Abbott. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, my name is Sean Navarro. I'm the Director of Partnerships here at Sync. And I'm Annie Liljegren, Director of Content. Our guest today is Dr. Jason Edwards, Strategy Principal of Information Security at USAA. Uh, Jason also serves as the Cybersecurity Leading Facilitator for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, the XPRO Cybersecurity Program, and is a teaching professor at the University of Miami, University of Central Florida, and NYU. Um, prior roles include the Director of IT Infrastructure and Security at Brace Industrial Group and Director of Information Security Operations at Argo Group International. Dr. Edwards retired from a 22-year enlisted to officer military career in the U.S. Army Cavalry, during which he served as Brigade CIO CISO uh, and later as Senior Information Systems Staff Officer. For his multiple tours in combat, including Iraq and Afghanistan, Dr. Edwards was awarded numerous medals and citations, including the Bronze Star. Thank you for your service, Jason, and, and we appreciate you being here. No, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about how you, you got where you are. Um, what was that journey like for you? Well, my wife did most of the work, I'm not going to lie, um, <laughs> by putting up with me for all these years, right? No, um... Uh, you know, I, I would say the transition from the military was was difficult. I, I think when we talk military transitions, it's usually have you been in for a couple of years and you get out, right? You know what I mean? Or for those of us that do the full twenty, right, or two decades worth of service, it's kind of a shock to us, right? I still remember filling out my first job application, and it didn't say you know jobs over the past five years. It said your last three employers, and I was like, well, U.S. Army, Hardee's in Illinois, <laughs> like McDonald's, right? I was like, yeah. that's it. There's like a 21-year break there. Yeah. No, I, I think a lot of it is just hard work and education and just dedication, right? You, it's just the way things are today. You got to be aggressive in some cases and be smart. Now, with the increases of, you know, work from home and, and remote and hybrid workplaces becoming, you know, somewhat the standard, can you share with us some of your thoughts or insights on, on leadership in a remote workplace? Yeah, you know, early in my, as part of my education, we did work on virtual teaming. And this was, of course, before the COVID, you know, pandemic came out. Um, and I got lucky to work for a company such as USA, which really had heavily invested into remote work beforehand, right? So, and of course, now I think it's just a continuation and an expansion of that in our company to where quite a few of us will be working from home. Matter of fact, half of my team is permanently work from home, right? In other states and other cities and stuff as well. And I think that's fantastic. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that, right? One is um, we're breaking out of old management routines, right? Old management routines was, you know, and I want to say previous management routines, not old, but previous management routines was if you're at your desk, you're working, right? Right. Instead of a capacity focus, right? Or a performance kind of focus or a goals focus, which I think is what happens now. So if you have a person and they have a capacity of, let's say 10 projects, right? A project manager, and they're doing five, if they're in the office or not, they're doing something else with that 50% of that capacity they're not using. And it's usually not going to be related to work. We're human, right? I think now in this new form of management, 
the question is, is I've given you 10 things. Are you performing on them? Fantastic. If I give you five things, are you performing on them? Great. I, I don't care if you're making a ham sandwich at two o'clock or whatever it is, but are you completing the goals that I've set out for you, right? And I think that is the new management routine. The, the other advantage that you have, and this is purely from an employer kind of focus, is that you're no longer stuck from recruiting for a single geographic area, right? So for example, the headquarters of USA is in San Antonio. We do have other branches out there, of course. Um, but let's say, for example, if they wanted a position here in San Antonio, you either moved here, right? Or you currently lived here. And, and I, first of all, love living in San Antonio. I tell everybody the best place to retire, you know, is San Antonio. But a lot of people don't have that. They have families, they have stuff like that. So now we can look at that entire job market across the country and elsewhere and go, let's pick the best candidate out of all of those. Instead of worrying about, do we need to pay them to move here? Or is that candidate going to turn that down? And, and, and over the years, I've had job offers to where I just literally said, I'm not leaving. You know what I mean? My kids are happy in school. You know, I mean, this is yeah. my family's more important in some cases. Right. I think that's one of the new, um, I guess, good ideals that have come out, at least COVID, is that a lot of people who didn't have that perspective on remote working have it now. Yeah, there are a lot of positives coming out of this. Now, from a leadership standpoint, you know, what's different in leading people or, you know, assessing those performances in a virtual setting? Well, we've all become really good at Zoom so, and other collaborative tools like that, right? You know what I mean? Whereas most meetings beforehand, you might have had one or two people on it that were remote. Now it's, you know, we even in the office, we're all doing it because of our teams are remote, right? Um, I think we've learned how to communicate more effectively in these lower kind of bandwidth kind of tools that we have, Slack, instant messenger, email, stuff of that nature. They've become more important. Um, I would say a lot of stuff too, especially companies who are still depending on Skype and things have really hastened their moves to things like Slack or Teams and stuff just to, to improve that. Zoom, for example, has such, such an easy interface that when the pandemic started, everybody just wanted to use something that was very easy instead of, you know, the old conference call. Yeah. Well. In this workplace of the future, you know, how important are technical skills compared to, you know, some personality traits or people skills? Well, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I mean, technical skills, if that's your job, then you need to have them, right? That's sure. No one's going to forgive you if you accidentally pen test the wrong server on the internet, right? That's aside from possibly being a crime, right? You know what I mean? Uh, but the one thing, and I will tell you in our career, right, especially since I started, you know, a, a decade ago, at least in the civilian world, is that, you know, everybody who acted, you know, I call them the Wallies, right? If you read Dilbert, right? You know what I mean? Wally is that fidgety, you know, you know, it's, it's, you know, he's very hard to deal with, doesn't want to do any work, but he knows how the mainframe operates and that company can never get rid of him. Right. That is not the case. And it hasn't been the case, honestly, in a long time. I think some people are just starting to realize that, right. That you just can't be impersonal or impolitic to everybody in your workplace. Right. You need to take other people's feelings into consideration and honestly making them work better. It's not, you know, there's other, there, there's two sides of the spectrum and politics and the way we describe these kind of interactions, but I just call it human interaction. Right. You know what I mean? You want to treat people about treat people better because they work for it. And I think the military has a great um, and again, you know, military works on people, right? You know, we, our people are what we do, especially in the U.S. Army. But our definition of motivation has always been kind of interesting, and it's something every soldier learns. Like, what is motivation? Motivation is getting other people to want to do what you know has to be done. 
not getting them to do it, which I think is an old management routine, but getting them to want to do it, to believe in it. And you're not going to get that way by just being a jerk, right? You're not. You need to treat everybody fairly and, and get them to believe in what you're asking them to do. Absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned just, you know, training, you know, your future workforce, but I think also part of this is is the retention aspect. So, you know, investing so much in, in these these people's futures, how do you, how do you retain that talent, um, you know, in, in a remote setting? Well, and here's the one thing, and we all got to remember this, you may not, right? right? And, and, and you probably you should not, right? Because let's say a lot of cases you have junior level positions. Do you want them there for 10 years, right? Is that the candidate that you want, right? Is that the person that you want? Is it, you know, after 10 years, they're doing the exact same, you know, low level job, or do you need other people to move through that, right? Consider yourself as uh, I'm the one who trains them. And then I want my birds to leave the nest and go out and be great. And then I will get new people to train. In the military, we never got to choose who we got. We never did. We assumed they came out of a service school. We got them in our unit and we trained them up and we did it. We had the mindset that we did not expect that candidate to come in with everything that we needed them to have, right? We expected that there would be training and validation and stuff that had to be done on it. And since we expected that, we became good at it, right? Non-commissioned officers in the military are the best at training in the world. They've learned how to do it since we were privates and then they go on to be NCOs, right? And, And they've done it. Um, but I think that's it. I think we got to get out of the mindset that we expect him to come in knowing, but expect him to come in training. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when you did speak at our TOLA forum this past fall, um, you, you emphasized the importance of non-technical cyber careers. So what are some of the areas that folks often don't think of as like a cyber career, but are, are really valuable and needed? Well, especially for people with, you know, cyber skills, right? I think a lot of times in a lot of our education is focused on creating penetration testers and technical cyber. And yes, we do need an army of those. That's by far, those are our greatest needs. And I think that's fine. But do we serve the population of people who would want to be in our career field by just saying that you're going to, you know, hey, you know what, you're 43, you have a master's degree, let's teach you how to do a firewall job, right? Or something like that. That's not realistic, right? What we need to have is, and and again, I don't like calling them boot camps. I think boot camps is the worst word possible, right? If If the boot camp is, I'm going to get a certification in five days. Right. Professional programs, which do focus on a lot of technical cyber, is good to get basic on there. But there's a lot of jobs out there. And let's talk about the spectrum or like I like to call it about cybersecurity. Right. You have auditors. Right. Back in the day, these were CPAs. Right. These are financial auditors that are trying to do IT. Now, after all these years, we have IT auditors, but they're not cyber auditors. Right. How do you train cyber auditors? Because we need good auditors to catch mistakes in the system so that we can improve the processes. Right. Risk management professional professionals, compliance and privacy huge career fields, especially with the laws that you see coming out for a very long time. Our federal government has not enacted federal privacy or 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 even cybersecurity laws, right? We still have the CFAA was written in 1984 as our primary mode of enforcing cybersecurity crimes in the United States. So states have really picked up that 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 banner and have been leading it over the past couple of years, leading to this patchwork of 50 state regulations and laws around it. We need people who understand that, right? We're not going to go out and hire a $1,000 an hour lawyer to do it. We need people to implement that inside the company. Um, and then you have management. We have a lot of people who are good managers, 
right, that may not have the specific cyber skills to go over and lead cybersecurity teams, right? IT executives who are looking at more and more of their career being outsourced or replaced with automation, what do they do? Well, cyber is that is that great field. We need leaders to move over and do it. There are transition skills and other skills that cyber needs that we do lack a lot of times. We don't focus on those, right? There's the look at the certifications in those fields, the CISA, the CRISC, very high level certifications. You're not getting those in an entry level job. Matter of fact, you can take the CISA, but you still have to have two years of auditing to even get the certification. Why do you get two years of auditing as a cyber person without a certification, right? It's We don't have junior level certifications in those non-technical areas, right? Security Plus is about what everybody just uses instead. Sure, sure. You know, you mentioned USAA. Um, they've been pushing work from home for, for years. What, what was the reasoning behind that? Well, I think it was just choice, right? One, USA is um, it, it's a private company, right? So they have more flexibility in how they do things. But I would say since I've came to USA, and I've been very lucky to get a position here and work here with the great people that are here, um, they have really focused on on where is a person happy and are they going to be a better employee because of it, right? When I got here, the first thing is walking down the halls, I saw these little robots with people's faces on them. I'm like, oh my God, what is this, right? You know what I mean? And, and it was the coolest thing. And they were telepresence robots because that was four years ago, USA was investing in that kind of actual hardware and technology to make those people feel at home. If you had work from home employees, you had to include them in things that you did. You just couldn't consider them that extra employee. Um, but I think a lot of it too is that how do you recruit the best talent? USA has been a hub for some of the best talent in the country. And I think you do that by going outside the traditional, do you live in San Antonio? Do you live in Phoenix? Do you live in Plano? Right. And then like, hey, you know what? Are, are you more happier with your family in Montana, but you have the right skills, right? Or stuff of that nature. Or, or do you have to go somewhere for four months and take care of maybe a sick parent? And we still want you to work, right? You know, you still you still want that ability to be able to work. You're not taking, you know, you're not resigning from your position. You're not taking PTO. We can make that flexible enough for you. And I think we have a fantastically motivated workforce, right, that serves us. So, Jason, as we're thinking about training and, and workplace culture, um, we obviously have to acknowledge the tremendous cultural differences between a military workplace and a civilian workplace. You gave a keynote at the 2019 Financial Services Tech Summit titled What the Financial Services Industry Learned from U.S. Military Modernization. And in that speech, one of the things you said up front was that one great thing the military does is bring people together from all over the country and teach us to work together in a way you don't really see in the rest of society. And that was the end of the quote. So I wonder if you know, the, the military almost, I hope this is fair to say, presumes that full cultural immersion Whereas it seems that maybe industry more or less assumes people come in fully trained. Well, so two parts, right? I would say, you know, the one thing I want to say is every organization has its failures. The U.S. military is no exception. We still do fail on some things, right? They, they, did, they did back in the day, they do now. But the great thing about the military was, is as a leader, you didn't pick the people that worked for you. You got them. Right. You know what I mean? Whether whether they knew what they were doing or not, you had a mission to accomplish. I had to get that tank out of the motor pool and drive it off to war or whatever it was. Right. So whoever you got, you got. And then you where it was incumbent on you and your junior leadership to train them to be effective. It wasn't, you know, this this and, and in the civilian world, we kind of have this false ideal. I have all these things I'm looking for in a candidate. And if I can't find them then I'm not going to be able to do it. Well, the person you just let go probably didn't have all those ideals, right? Or they didn't start with all of those ideal things that you would like in there. The military has a, has a technique called crawl, walk, run, 
right? Which is every single training objective is crawl, walk, run, right? Do you take it slowly, walk through it first. Then you let them, you know, say take it slowly and crawl through it. Then you walk them through it at their speed. And then finally you're like, okay, can you do it at a run? Kind of, you know, that kind of incremental approach to it. I think people, when they hire people, they look for the ideal candidate instead of the future candidate, the future leader or future person that they want. Take the time to invest in people. It creates loyalty. It creates the person that you need to do that job, right? And, and do that. I think the other thing that you have a lot of time is managers who don't understand technical people. They may be a non-technical manager over technical folks and they're afraid, right? If they don't find that ideal candidate because they don't understand it, they're not going to be able to finish their mission, right? I think in our society too, especially with an employee job market, you're going to take what you get. And a lot of times it's better to take someone and train them than it's ever going to be for that, right? And I think, you know, that mindset of a, I'm not a leader, I'm a trainer, Right. You know what I mean? I'm not a supervisor. I'm their leader. You know what I mean? And, and, and then a trainer and, and that with their I think that's the mindset you have to have in the future. We just can't say and, and let's face it, four year college degrees don't make good pen testers. I don't care who you are. Right. You know what I mean? You don't do Cali Linux in school and a four year college degree. And we see a lot of people with college degrees going to cyber that have nothing to do with cyber, you know, and stuff of that nature. It's the hands on. And you're going to get people in a lot of hands on skills. But but again, no one expects a college graduate in any job in the United States to have all the skills they need. You know, they're going to train them. Why would you expect that in cybersecurity? Right. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, you know, obviously you have in the military, you have enlisted personnel for whom a college degree is not required, who are doing jobs that would require a four-year degree in the private sector, and not only doing them, but doing them very well. So is there is that another another takeaway from that military example is that the industry pipeline could be different, the qualifications could be different. Yeah, because we all go out there and look for that. It's got to be a fighter pilot that we're hiring, right? It's got to be the best of the best of the best or something of that nature. When is exactly correct. In the U.S. military, 90% of the work is done by enlisted soldiers. And I was one of them. When I joined the Army, I had no college degree. I got through high school and joined the U.S. Army, right? And they trained me from day one to be this soldier and then future enlisted leader and then an officer on what I needed to do. But even as an officer, the numbers were maybe four or five of us to 120 people in our brigade that did our job, right? There was never going to be that, you know, college degree requirement for any of those enlisted soldiers. And they did a great job. We trained them with what they needed to do, and they did it. We have a college bias because we put it into our psyche that if you're a college graduate, you're up here, right? And what I would like to say is it's not that we think college graduates are smarter, better, faster, or stronger, right? We think that they have done that four years of, of whatever it's required of them. They have checked a box that brings them up to a level of, well, we think that they're competent because they at least got through a four-year program. It's just the wrong mentality. It's an old mentality, right? It's not the new mentality. We need to look at it as, do they have the right skills? Are they able to be trained, right? Are they someone who will fit in our company's culture and in my team's culture? And if they are, then, you know, the rest of it is going to be the exact same if they had a college degree. In a world where maybe you can't count on someone being in the same role for 20 years, what does that mean for process documentation for institutional memory for how you document not only how things ought to be functioning, but how things really are functioning. Put that together with the fluidity of talent. So it is, right? Because, for example, in the military, we have very set 
documentation and practices that we follow. So we have things all the way down to what we call battle drills, which is inside the tank. If something happens, we yell the command and then everybody does what they do. Those are, those are procedures that we have memorized and trained on. And if a new person comes in, we do the same thing for them until they do it, right? We have that ingrained into our DNA in the military is how to follow these kind of procedures and stuff. But we also know when to go outside of that, right? Now, if you look at like, you know, I would say less than success stories like Equifax, right? It wasn't just that the Chinese attacked Equifax. There was major flaws in their internal processes, right? That led to some of these kind of things that, 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 that allowed those compensating controls to fail that allowed them into the system. We have to take the time to do that because whether we like it or not, this is the ground we fight on. We're going to have a lot of attrition right? It's going to go up. There's going to be companies out there that can pay double what you're paying your employee. That's just the way it is. You make other reasons for them to stay, right? It's not going to always be about money. But if you do lose them, expect to do it, right? Expect one to two years to become the new norm, right? When you look at a candidate, their resumes are going to have a couple long, you know, you're not going to get the five-year candidate, the seven-year candidate anymore. You're going to get people that are more mobile because they want to try different things in their career. Um, documentation, GRC practices, having GRC tools that function, that are effective, that people use. Again, you can have the greatest documentation on the planet, but if nobody follows it, what good is it, right? Do you have the controls in place? And, and let's go back to the auditor discussion. Do you have auditors that come in and go, show me the proof that you've been following this procedure that you're supposed to do, right? And, and I think the simplest thing we always talk about procedures, we always talk about help desks, right? Because they live and die on those procedures. You know, is it plugged in? I'm sorry, it's number four, I got to ask the question, right? But when we get into more difficult stuff like cyber, where I was like, I don't like to follow books, you know what I mean? Or something like that. We've got to eliminate that attitude completely. It is okay to have a procedure. It is okay to change that as times change, but you must follow it. You must evidence it so that this is done every time on time because you can't have, hey, guess what? We didn't change the certificates and our IDSs for a very long time kind of discussion, right? If we can get off you a little soapbox moment here, I suppose, what's top of mind for you as far as something that either you wish was getting more attention or something that gets a lot of buzz, but you wish that the conversation were deeper or better or really weighing on your mind that you wish the industry or your peers or whatnot would be thinking about as well? I think the one thing we look at, especially in a lot of risk management practices, is there's no real standard out there. Right. You know what I mean? How, what risks do you follow? What processes do you need to develop for those risks? How do you report on those risks? Right. We lack a lot of that. Now, I would say in, during the Obama administration, there was a big push to allow banks to talk to each other outside of antitrust laws. I still think there's a lot of that in place that prevents that. Right. The competitive anti-competitive practices of how you share that kind of information or when we do share it, we share it with organizations that require subscriptions to be a part of that knowledge. I think NIST is the model for all future cybersecurity work, right? And not a, a governmental organization that is very unbiased, that is very non-political, that is able to share those kind of practices out there with the civilian sector. I think uh, this administration, the previous administration, the one before it, they've all been going in the right direction with cybersecurity you know, information sharing uh, and things of that nature. I mean, even if you look at something that we use every day, the, the, the National Vulnerability Database, CVEs, I mean, that's a governmental organization that has done that, right, and, and made it very apolitical, and we have all used it around the world to do it. I would say, lastly, the other thing is, is that we've got to change our hiring practices, right? Uh, um, I, I've always been frustrated with, for example, job descriptions that say IT manager or cybersecurity analyst. And you literally have no idea what the pay band is. You have no idea what the requirements are of that position because they're so 
varied between company and cross companies across companies. It makes it very hard for people getting into the career to know which thing that they should they should apply to, right? You know what I mean? The NICE framework for NIST has been out there. Companies have not been implementing it. I think that'd be a fantastic thing to do. Um, and then lastly, I think we just got to ban the box when it comes to college. I think college is great. I would encourage everyone to get a college degree. I think it has changed my life and gave me perspectives I've never had before. But I think if you're a mother of two working on your own and you want to change your life, which is some of the people I've dealt with, right? You know, she's she's got two kids. She's working in a, an Amazon delivery warehouse or something of that thing to make ends meet. But at night, she's going to school to be a cyber person, right? That's the people that you want to give opportunities to. And how do we do that when you say that she should wait for four years and $60,000 to get a college degree. What have we really done with education in our country? We don't have vocational education for technology. We assume it's all college degrees, and that's that's not the right answer. You make a very compelling case. Um, you know, Jason, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. We're, we're really excited to have you join us again and speak uh, at our March TOLA Forum in, in Austin. Um, you know, before we have you leave, you know, what are you looking forward to? What do you want to leave the audience with? Is there anything you'd like to plug? I, I love LinkedIn, right? I love posting humor on LinkedIn and making people laugh and stuff like that. And, and I always teach my students LinkedIn and the do's and don'ts. Like, you know, the third rail is politics. Just stay away from it. But I think the one thing that people really need to do is step back from the news cycle. Right. We all get invested in the news cycle and 24 hour news. And, and I'm not going to pick any sides on any of this. Right. But we get so focused on and they you know, they're trying to glue our eyeballs to a TV screen. So everything is fantastical that we go in there. But if you step back from it, what has that really affected you except for getting you upset about something that happens in Connecticut or something? you know what I mean about some politician in like Jersey or something? What has that really done for you except for make you get into arguments with family or friends or coworkers and stuff like that when it didn't even need to be there? I think if people could step back and go, look, maybe instead of protesting, you know, and we've had people protest back and forth on I mean, both sides, maybe I should spend a day at a, at a, at a women's shelter. Or maybe I'll spend a day at a no-kill dog shelter. Or maybe I'll volunteer with youth sports or something of that nature. I just don't think – I think we spend – we've turned politics and news into football games. We've turned them into sports where my team wins or your team wins. And we don't think about all the possible local volunteering efforts. I tell all of my students, you must have a volunteering background, right, when you go out and you do for it. Find something that's a passion that you like to do. You like to work with your hands? Go help build houses, right? You like to wrap college, you know, gift presents, you know, at, at these shelters and stuff like Do that. You like to work with animals? There is no shelter in the country that's going to turn you down for going out there and helping them feed the dogs on the weekends, especially the no-kill ones, right? So I think find that personal passion outside of all of this mess that is our media and our news cycle, and you'll just be a very happier person for it. 100% agree. Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Great. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for Season 2 of Sync the Conversation. You can engage with Dr. Jason Edwards at our 2022 TOLA Forum, March 6th through the 8th, at the Hyatt Regency Lost Pines, outside Austin, Texas. Meanwhile, the conversation continues at our signature events, which for January include executive dinners in Detroit, Raleigh, Toronto, and Philadelphia, our BFSI Leaders Virtual Forum on January 24th, and so much more. Visit SyncUSA.com for a full events calendar, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and join us next time for Sync the Conversation.